Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 92, VH History. Welcome to episode 92 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, summer is over, so are my trips through syndication in the Titans, and I'm back to my regularly trek through whatever I want to talk about. Honestly, that syndication miniseries, while a lot of work, was a lot of fun to put together. Um, and it was a lot of fun to go back to and listen to when it came out. So I'm happy people really seem to enjoy it. Um, I really uh, did enjoy the Baltimore Comic Con, as you heard. I had fun talking about all of the other stuff like I did with uh, the Titans recently. And uh, I'm actually going to kind of come back to the syndication stuff with this episode, though. What I'm doing this time is um, talking about something that spun out of my look into education, or at least it was something I mentioned in the last couple of episodes of the miniseries. And that is the other thing that made sitting on the couch in front of the television during my formative years so memorable, which is the VHS tape. More specifically, I'm going to talk about blank VHS tapes that I filled with hours upon hours of television programs and movies, things that I made an effort to save and watch again or was not around to watch and taped because I was going to miss it. The impetus for this episode uh, comes from a visit to my parents' house back in April of 2018, earlier this year. We'd gone up to Long Island for spring break because we were going to be spending a few days in New York City, and it seems like every time I go back to my parents' house, they're asking me if I want to take something that's been sitting in the basement for what seems like eons, untouched except for the times when it was moved so my dad could remodel again. I think it's because they're finally starting to clean things out or because they bought so much more crap that they have no room for the new crap, so they have to get rid of the old crap. In the past, it's been old toys, it's been records, it's been board games. This time around, it was an entire cabinet's worth of video cassettes. So, because I just can't let something go with at least checking it out first, I rifled through the cabinets and grabbed what I wanted. Most of the tapes they had purchased were stuff I already have on DVD, so I only grabbed the ones I didn't have and still wanted, which is basically a handful of movies starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Beyond that, however, was at least a shelf and a half full of tapes that were once blank and had some sort of label on them, whether it was specifically what was on the tape or just the words Tom's blank. I grabbed those, put them in a bag, and they sat in my basement until this summer when I spent the better part of a couple of weekdays sitting downstairs and cataloging what was on them. And that leads us to this episode. 
But before I get to that, I do feel that I want to provide some background because my history with VHS and VCRs goes back pretty far, which is surprising for someone who didn't have cable growing up and therefore was living in the Stone Age until about 1996. My dad bought our first VCR sometime in the early 1980s. I want to say that probably 1983, maybe 1984. It was a Panasonic Omnivision model PV1220. And by the way, I did not have that memorized. I had to do a lot of Googling to figure out which one it was. But this was a top-loading VCR that had a clock, buttons for channels 2 through 13 if you were recording something on television, a remote control that had a wire and you had to hook it to the machine in order to use it, and the cord was so short that it didn't reach across the room, so we never actually unwrapped said remote control. And it had a programmable timer. We'd have this VCR for most of the rest of the decade. Sometime in the late 80s, my parents upgraded to a front-loading VCR and went through a couple of others before they switched over to a DVD player in the early 2000s. They may actually still have a VCR in the basement, by the way. They aren't the types to throw away something if it still works. In fact, the original VCR never actually really died. We just upgraded so that we could have one with a true remote control. That VCR ended up dying, believe it or not. So we bought one for the den and eventually another for the basement after my dad gave that original one to a friend of his. And I can actually put money on that thing still working if it is still around. I think that the purchase of said VCR overlapped with our short stint of having Showtime, because at one point, I remember having taped the complete video and making of mini-documentary for Thriller off of Showtime, and then I lent that to one of my best friends. But I do know that we had a VCR in 1984, because one of the first things we ever taped on a 3M Scotch VHS blank tape, and I remember it had a black case, was CBS's annual showing of The Wizard of Oz, during which we could see the Pepsi commercial where Michael Jackson's hair caught on fire. And from there, we were into the VCR thing pretty quickly because we had memberships in two different video stores. One was Video Village, which was this total hole-in-the-wall place in Sable near the Chicken Delight that packaged its tapes in brown clamshell boxes. And for the record, the store left there years ago and I think is now a dog grooming place or something. The Chicken Delight is now Hot Bagels, if you're familiar with the Sable area. Uh, the other one was in Oakdale. It was across from the train station. It was called Video Zone. The only thing I remember about that place was that their video cassettes were given to us in the classic video store boxes, but they were all red. The game changer for renting, by the way, was the opening of Sable's Video Empire, which opened in a building not very far from my house and which for a video store at the time was actually pretty huge. I could really go on about this place, and I may do that in some capacity one day, but I'm going to keep it brief because I think that would make this episode incredibly long, or at least become another series altogether. Plus, Rob Kelly and David Gutierrez already had one of the definitive conversations about going to and working at video stores back in the day, and if you haven't listened to it, it's episode number 71 of the Film & Water podcast over at the Fire & Water Network. Now, as I was saying, though, the opening of Sable's Video Empire was a game changer because not only was it an enormous video store, it was within walking distance or biking distance from my house, so I could go there on my own and not have to ask my parents to drive me. Plus, rentals were about $3, and that was really affordable even in the 1980s. I think even at one point they dropped the rental price to a buck or two for old movies and kept the new release price at their standard rate 
And there was a point in the 1990s where they were trying to convert to DVD and therefore sold off a lot of their VHS tapes. So I bought a ton of movies, some of which I still have. But like I said, the history of my life as customer number 1729 is probably a tale for another day. As is, by the way, purchased copies of movies. In 1986, my dad joined what was then called the CBS Video Club, and this would be bought by Columbia House at one point. I, of course, did an episode about the Columbia House Music Club back in 2013 with episode 11 of this show. And I think that I did mention my dad's video membership. I know that it was the source for a number of movies we owned, including the first four Star Trek movies, a few Schwarzenegger flicks, and oddly enough, the John Murray comedy Moving Violations. By the time I hit college, places like Suncoast Video and Saturday Matinee were mall fixtures, and the price of new movies for purchase had dropped from the $79.95 you had to pay back in 1986 to between $10 and $20, which is what I was paying for the average CD. It is all part of the weird biography of my life in movies, a trip through various genres and my true education in pop culture that you've seen play out in various ways across the now 92 episodes of this show, plus miniseries. And it could be further mined for material. Trust me, I know how to go to a well. So after mentioning those two things, what's left is the blank tapes. What was I taping back in the 80s and the early 90s? What was I determined to make sure I didn't miss or wanted to watch again? Well, I'll start my deep dive into all of that after this break. Stick around. So we're going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film and Water Podcast covers movies new and old, classic, and uh, not so classic. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. TDK-HS, the advanced videotape for today's VCRs. Blurry pictures cloud your soap operas, get TDK-HS and kiss bleeding colors goodbye. Got tape that jitters under pressure? Get TDK-HS for a solid 10 performance. Got blizzards of TDK-HS for no snow video? Step up to TDK-HS. It's perfect for today's VCRs. So what you heard was a commercial for TDK video cassettes that I grabbed from YouTube that aired sometime in the mid-80s based on the type of box that was in the video. And yes, I'll throw that into the show notes. I specifically grabbed this commercial because when I was going through the tapes in my parents' basement, I noticed that the vast majority of them were TDK cassettes, so much so that the cover image for this episode is those tapes lined up in more or less chronological order. I can't tell you why my parents seem to have such brand loyalty to TDK, but the case with the words T120 and Super Avalon will always remind me of being a kid and finding the tape of whatever shows I've been wanting to watch for the umpteenth time. And we weren't exclusive to one brand or anything, you know, I found some XL tapes, some JVC tapes, a Fuji tape whose case was plastic instead of cardboard. But the stack that I have is mainly of those TDK cassettes, and the earliest of those are actually things that were taped for me. I mentioned that the first thing I remember having on tape was a 1984 CBS showing of The Wizard of Oz, but right behind that were four video cassettes featuring movies that I would watch over and over, and that are defining movies for my generation. The first 
is Superman. The other three are the original Star Wars trilogy. These were all tapes that my dad's friend Chuck, whom we called Uncle Chuck, dubbed from his Laserdiscs in the 80s. They were all pan and scan, and the sound quality is what you would expect from a dubbed tape in the mid-1980s, but I watched the crap out of all of them through my childhood, especially the Star Wars tape. In fact, I think I may have mentioned this on my episode of my Star Wars story a number of years ago. I actually kept a running tally of the number of times I had watched Star Wars when I was a kid, and I know at this point I have seen that movie at least a hundred times. And yes, I know now that is not exactly an accomplishment. It would probably put me in the minor leagues of Star Wars fans, but to me, that's still something to brag about. Anyway, that copy of Superman is long gone because I offloaded it when I got the film on DVD a number of years ago. I still have those three original Star Wars tapes, though, and will probably keep them until my VCR finally breaks and a replacement becomes impractical, or they deteriorate to the point where they are no longer readable, or... They finally actually released those movies on Blu-ray in their original versions. And it'll probably the thing that will result in throwing out the tapes, by the way, will probably be that they've deteriorated to the point where you can't watch them because VCRs in the secondary market are pretty easy to come by, whether uh, it be through eBay or going to like a Goodwill store or Salvation Army. A working Betamax, on the other hand, not so much. But what is actually on that pile of tapes that was in my parents' basement, then mine, and eventually sent off to a recycling center because nobody wants to buy this crap on eBay? Well, like I said, I went through all of these tapes to find out what was on them, and after taking copious notes, I boiled it down to several decently defined categories. And since episodes like this do work in list form, I'm going to go through that list in a sort of order. There's definitely a beginning and an end point to the list based on when the programs and the tapes were aired and recorded, so I'm going to do my best to use it as a way to go across my entire history with taping shows on my VCR. And we're going to start with what was probably a common tape or two for a number of us as kids in the 80s, which is the once blank tape filled with cartoons. In the years before they would be readily and cheaply available on VHS, DVD, or even in streaming, parents who wanted a few moments of to themselves had certain times of the day when they could let TV babysit their kids. That is, until the VCR became a common household thing and they could tape those cartoons. The result? A tape that you wore out because you wanted to watch It's Flash Beagle, Charlie Brown, yet again. And yes, that is one of those tapes along with Garfield in Paradise, the Peanuts 40th Anniversary Special, half of a DuckTales Valentine special, and a ton of classic Christmas specials, such as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, A Charlie Brown Christmas, A Garfield Christmas, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Frosty the Snowman, and the Rankin-Bass animated Twas the Night Before Christmas. All of which, by the way, I'm sure were taped off CBS, because back in the 80s, CBS was the place for animated specials, especially around Christmas. And the CBS special sound is just as recognizable before shows like Rudolph or Charlie Brown as the 20th Century Fox fanfare is before the opening crawl of Star Wars. With a couple of exceptions that may make their way onto the blog, most of what's in both of these tapes is stuff I have in another format, whether it be streaming or in DVD and Blu-ray. So after I wind my way through a deeper dive into a couple of these specials, I'll probably throw them away. I'm going to kind of blow over this, as it is because even though we really didn't talk about these specials, I feel like Amanda and I exhausted our cartoons on It Came From Syndication. Plus, it's not like I really need to do a deep dive into the history and messages behind a Charlie Brown Christmas. 
I will say, though, that Flash Beagle is probably the most 80s things that Peanuts could have put out, and it reminds me how, how the people who produced kids-related stuff in the early 1980s seemed to have Flashdance and Olivia Newton-John's Let's Get Physical on repeat or something, because you had this, you had size. I think the Chipettes wore leg warmers. But for me, the best part of these tapes might actually be the Garfield specials. Nancy and I watched Garfield in Paradise, I think, 30 or 40 times after it originally aired, and the scene in a Garfield Christmas where they light the tree and everyone goes, ooh, is still so much a running bit between us that I make it my Facebook profile picture during the Christmas season. They are so much of their time, as is much of the 1980s Garfield craze, but they hold up incredibly well, especially the Christmas special, which I have on DVD at this point. And that, that also actually does include a number of other shows, such as Garfield uh, in Disguise, the Halloween special, and uh, Garfield in Paradise. And yes, I watch the Garfield Christmas every year. It does make you think, by the way, about what exactly makes a Christmas special timeless, aside from multiple airings over the years. I mean, that certainly has helped perennial favorites like Charlie Brown, Rudolph, and movies like It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story. But Garfield really hasn't seen the light of day on network very much since it last aired on CBS in 2000. The 2007 edition of the DVD sold well, and when it went out of print, actually fetched a decent amount of money on eBay, which is what led to further releases and a release on streaming. This doesn't do much as far as discovering something is concerned, but I will say that it adds another layer to the conversation we were having a couple of months back. You watch the crap out of every cartoon that came your way. And once you had your Christmas specials tape, you knew that they were always going to be there. So if you decided to watch something new that was on, like, say, the California Raisins Christmas special, the tape was there for you to pop in. The other thing I also find interesting, by the way, is how my son wants to watch these every year and doesn't blink an eye about how old they are, whereas he never really got that into all the cartoons that we were watching when we were kids. I mean, he had a run of really liking Animaniacs and the DC superhero cartoons from the 90s and 2000s, but he hasn't really sought out old Transformers or Voltron stuff, even though he's enjoyed newer versions of those. But Charlie Brown, Rudolph, Garfield, some of which are much older than even I am, sign him up. Of course, he doesn't have to wade through hours of stuff, including commercials on one tape like we had to, so I'd say he's got it pretty good with his DVDs and Blu-rays. Next up in the pile are movies. And I could have flipped these two things around because I mentioned The Wizard of Oz was the very first program I remember having on video. It was taped from the TV. And as I got further and further into the 80s and 90s, I actually would tape a number of movies off television. Some of them would remain and still exist, and others would be taped over. Three that are still there but are unwatchable due to really, really bad sound quality on the tape are Superman 2, Superman 3, and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. My VHS copies of 2 and 3 were taped off of ABC broadcasts somewhere back in the mid-80s, which means they might actually have footage and scenes in them that didn't make the final cut of the DVD that was released a number of years ago. I know that there's a longer version of the first movie out there on Blu-ray right now, but to my knowledge, the only cut of the Lester version of Superman 2 is what was basically the classical theatrical and home video release. I also have the Donner cut, which I find better in some places and lacking in others, but that's really not relevant to this conversation. I do wish the tape had been in good shape because I would hold on to it. Same with Superman 3, which has the opening credits that were added on to television broadcasts. My copy of Superman 4 was 
taped off PIX in 1989 or so, and I remember that this was around the time where they were airing the movie a lot, and I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't go back and watch it as much as, say, my copies of 1 and 2, but I didn't hate the film. Years later, I would watch it on DVD, and while that release really does show all the flaws in the movie, it's still not the worst Superman movie, and its crappiness is part of its charm. Over the years, I would tape quite a number of movies that ran on ABC, which seemed to be my go-to network for blockbuster flicks, while WPIX was my headquarters for some more random ones. For years, I had taped a copy. I had a taped copy of Raiders of the Lost Ark that I would watch at least through the beginning. And I remember watching, for some reason, prior to the beginning of Raiders, I had taped a segment on 2020 about baseball cards and how they were becoming seriously hot property. It was, I believe, from 1986, which would have made sense because that was when I really started getting into collecting baseball cards, and that would be a pretty serious hobby of mine until about 1990 or 1991. Other movies off of TV that were either on the tapes or that have been taped over were the Disney animated version of Robin Hood, which we watched all the time as kids because before it was formally released on VHS later in the decade. In fact, I remember we had taped at least a few of what ABC would call the Disney Sunday movie in the mid-1980s, and I might track a few of those down for possible blog posts or podcast episodes. There were animated movies that were essentially lengthy episodes of our favorite cartoons, such as G.I. Joe the Movie, Thundercats Ho, and DuckTales' Legend of the Lost Lamp. At one point, I had the edited-for-television versions of both Revenge of the Nerds and Revenge of the Nerds 2, which, again, I would watch like crazy. And I also had both parts of the TV movie version of Stephen King's It, although that eventually got taped over with some Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. We also taped V the Final Battle at one point because I remember watching much of the first episode but then refusing to watch the rest because I walked into the room when my dad was fast forwarding through the end of part two so he could tape something else and I got to see the alien birth scene in blurry fast forward and it scared the absolute crap out of me. Okay, I was seven years old and just about everything would scare the crap out of me, but I refused to watch it for years until I finally caught it on sci-fi when I was in college. 
Beyond that, though, the most peculiar tape I had featured two made-for-TV movies. One was the NBC airing of HBO's And the Band Played On, which I remember taping in high school because I knew it was going to be on and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stay up and watch the whole thing. It's possible that it was a school night, and even if I started it, I would have been chased up to bed at some point, despite my being like 17 at the time. Either that or both TVs were occupied during the first part of the night, so I just set the timer. Anyway, that's a movie that stuck out with me for years, and I remember even doing a research report on AIDS for my AP U.S. history class that year and using the movie as a source. I would read the book about 10 years ago, and it's one that is both really thorough and haunting. I may have to go back and watch the movie again. And after the band played on, but on the same tape, is the 1994 TV movie Tears and Laughter, the Joan and Melissa Rivers story. I have no idea who taped this, and sadly, I'd totally sit and watch it now just to write about it, but this was another tape that had sound problems, which seemed to be the case for a number of the tapes that had used the SLP or EP setting, or were taped over things that were taped over things that were taped over things so the picture is there but the show sounds like it's underwater and every once in a while it would have a clicking sound or a popping noise i would stop taping movies off television by the time i got into my later high school years and would start rigging uh two vcrs together to dub tapes that i had rented and really wanted copies of that's how i got a number of movies for a while such as clerks the breakfast club chasing amy Say Anything, Mall Rats, Empire Records, Heathers, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, How I Got Into College, The Sure Thing, Gross Point Blank, and a ton more. The third category that I created out of all of this is that of taped Star Trek episodes. But I'm not going to go too much into this because I have plans for a Trek-based episode sometime down the line. I will say that right around the time the movies were really popular and Next Gen was in its first few seasons, WPIX capitalized on their library of the original series episodes and would air them around 6 o'clock every night. So in addition to watching them, I also taped a number of them and have a good four or five videotapes with four episodes each. It's not necessarily an entire library of the original series, and I had a few tapes of random episodes from back when Paramount had released the entire series on VHS, you know, one episode per tape. But it was enough for me to watch and rewatch them. I did the same thing for Next Gen as well, even though I wasn't as into that show as I was the original series. One thing I will note is that when I came across the Star Trek tapes, they were pretty carefully cataloged and labeled. With Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, and so on on the sides of the tape and the top of the tape, neatly written episode titles. I would do this for a number of things, too. For instance, I have two tapes called Comedy Film Collection Volume 1 and Comedy Film Collection Volume 2. I don't know why I felt the need to categorize them like this, as if I was packaging and selling them in some sort of special edition commemorative box with a foil embossed cover or something. I swear that when you add this up to my love of sans-serif fonts and the need for consistency in trade dress, it all makes sense that I would spend 10 years as a high school yearbook advisor. Anyway, one of those collections that had a volume 1 and a volume 2, as well as random episodes on some other random tapes, was Seinfeld. The 
volume one tape had most of a season's worth of shows from the fourth season, which is the season for which the show won its only outstanding comedy Emmy, and is, in my opinion, probably the best full season they did, and it's pretty much just about peak Seinfeld. I'd say the seasons five, six, and seven are also incredibly strong, with the George's Wedding storyline that ties season seven together, making it the second best overall season of the show. Seasons eight and nine are, well, with the exception of a few episodes here and there, they're barely watchable now. Now, the fourth season is the one where during the season premiere, Jerry gets an offer from NBC to make a sitcom. And George comes up with the idea of a show about nothing. It's more or less a whole metatextual storyline and one that has done really well. Along the way, there are some of the show's most classic episodes, including The Contest, which is the episode where the gang bets one another who, to see who could abstain from masturbating the longest. The other season I got quite a bit of was Season 5, which had the season premiere of The Mango, which was all about fake orgasms, and a number of other episodes from around that time. Unfortunately, these were some of the more literally unwatchable tapes because of bad sound quality, but I did watch parts of some Season 3 episodes that were on the tape, even if they were hard to hear, because those early Seinfelds are some of my absolute favorites. The one that I watched the most of is called The Subway. Uh, this has been referred to as the New Yorkiest episode of the show. And this is the one where each of the four characters takes separate subway rides and has something, some sort of shenanigans happen. George, who is on his way to a job interview, winds up meeting a gorgeous woman who takes him to a hotel room and then steals all of his money and clothes. Kramer, who's on his way to pay for a buttload of traffic violations, goes to OTB and wins a huge amount of money and then is saved by a transit cop from being mugged. Jerry winds up falling asleep on the subway and waking up across from a na naked fat guy played by Ernie Sabella. That's right, Pumbaa and Mr. Kurosi from Saved by the Bell. And they proceed to have a conversation about the 1992 Mets that is even more laughable all these years later. And Elaine has the experience that we have all had on the subway, being in a crowded car that isn't fucking moving at all. It is one of the most brilliant episodes of television ever produced and easily in my top 10 episodes of the show. And I should do a Seinfeld episode, to be honest. The only other time on this podcast that I've done anything relating uh, to Seinfeld was the episode back in 2014 where Amanda and I watched the NBC Thursday Night, Night sitcom lineup from Thanksgiving of 94, and we watched the Mom and Pop Store, which is one of the weaker episodes of the sixth season. So I may go back and watch seasons one through four with a smattering of stuff after that and do something similar to what Stella and I did with Friends back in the beginning of 2017, because there are some really amazing episodes of television in there. And I should also mention that I was really into sitcoms, especially those on NBC back in the early 90s. The non-Seinfeld shows that I had on the tapes were episodes of Mad About You, another show, by the way, that is still great and I would love to rewatch. I also had some last season episodes of Cheers as well as the final episode of Night Court. And for some reason on another tape, a bunch of Facts of Life episodes from when Nick at Night ran the show back in 1999-2000. I bring this up because of the sheer number of sitcoms I watched in my childhood and young adult years has always been something I've mentioned, even as recently as it came from syndication. So it's no wonder that there were episodes of these shows on these tapes. I can imagine that they were actually taped over various episodes of other shows, like Growing Pains, because I know I taped a lot of Growing Pains at one point or another. One odd taped episode that seemed to be still preserved and not recorded over was, by the way, an episode called Dream Man, a first season episode of the NBC teen sitcom California Dreams. Mm -hmm. 
It's this episode that more or less rips off the Zack Bugs Jesse slumber party to find out who Kelly wants to take to the dance episode of Saved by the Bell. But instead of bugging her room, the Zack clone character called Sly winds up hiding under um, the character Jenny's bed and then proceeds to act like her dream man until she finds out the truth because he was able to overhear her talking with her girlfriends at a slumber party about like what the perfect uh, dream guy would be. The climax of the episode features Jenny luring Sly to dinner at her place and doing this bit where she pours various liquids in his lap while wearing an extremely tight dress. I know why I taped this episode, by the way. It was my huge crush on the actress who played Jenny. Her name is Heidi Noel Lenhart, or at least it was back then. I think she may have been married now or something. Anyway, I was also 15 at the time, so a girl who was probably a couple of years older than me on a Saturday morning show in a tight dress. Do the math. Um, I was 15. <laughs> anyway, rewatching the show, I actually found myself cringing at at that. But uh, slightly less cringeworthy, but still indicative of my hormonal state of 15, are the several episodes of Baywatch that I taped. And I did a whole episode of Baywatch just a month or two ago, so you don't need to, me to go too in-depth with this. I wanted to play the theme song again, because why not, right? But um, there, the episodes I found were a two-parter called Vacation, which I not only taped, but taped while watching it, so I cut the commercials out. I mean, I was really committed to the Nicole Eggert years of that show for a while. But to elevate my choices a little more, I was committed to taping random things that I was into at the moment, and where was trying out. Among the more random things on the tapes were a few old Lois and Clark episodes, a Dateline segment about Seinfeld. I told you I love that show. Some first season NYPD Blue episodes and a bunch of very random things that were obviously there because I had set the timer to run slightly over or the show ended a minute too earlier than the hour. That's why I have a lottery drawing from the early 1990s on one of the tapes and the opening of an episode to the George Michael Sports Machine. And most of these didn't hold my attention, so I fast-forwarded through quite a bit, stopping every once in a while to look at a segment of something or maybe a commercial. I should talk a little bit about the commercials, too, because in some cases, that tends to be the bigger find on tapes like this. Most of what I talked about already on this show is readily available in other formats like DVD, like streaming, or so forgettable that you really don't need to see it ever again. But the commercials from long ago are kind of like artifacts now 
And they've even grown into their own subgenre of sorts on YouTube. Or maybe I'm the only one among us who has seen a YouTube video titled 90s Commercial Block and watched all 10 minutes of it. A lot of the commercials I saw on the tapes were the typical of things you'd see even today, believe it or not. Car commercials haven't changed very much, and neither have commercials for beer or household products. Like, you could just reshoot an entire ad campaigns for a number of products using the same scripts, but using actors with contemporary hair and clothing styles, and it would, be, it would still work. I'm sure that someone with a much better background in psychology knows exactly why this is, so I'll leave it to those people to explain it, but I still find it fascinating. Also fascinating is that while the sheer insanity of commercials aimed at kids hasn't changed in 30 years, they're still loud, they still say kid or teen speak at you. There's a clear definition between aesthetic across the years, especially in commercials aimed at kids, tweens, and teens. The commercials from the 1980s were very neon infested and full of dance numbers. No, really. There were a number of commercials for everything from clothing to Chef Boyardee pasta in, the, in a can that featured someone dancing around. In fact, that pasta in a can commercials was one of the ones I wrote about a number of years ago on the blog. The one that I came across and will be writing about on the blog is a Kids R Us commercial. Now, Kids R Us was the clothing store spinoff of Toys R Us. And the commercial is kind of like a low-rent Kids Incorporated number or something. Switching gears, <laughs> I also found a, a lot of local commercials, many of which I've written about in the past, but there was a commercial for Rob Kelly's favorite place in the world, beautiful Mount Airy Lodge in the Poconos. Now is the perfect time, and the season is just right. You can play all day and dance into the night. At beautiful Mount Airy Lodge, all you have to bring is your love of everything. Reservations, phone 1-800-441-4410. All you have to bring is your love of everything. Beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. And there was also stuff in Jersey and upstate New York, like the Young People's Day Camp and the Land of Make-Believe Action Park. When I was a kid, these were places that, while real, only existed for me on television. Like, I was never going to go to Young People's Day Camp. I would waste away my summer days at the Town of Islip Rec program in the old junior high or would wind up sitting at home and eventually finding things to do with my friends. And even when I was a kid, the commercials for the Land of Make-Believe were so old that I imagined that visiting the place would be going to like the creepy, rundown, haunted amusement park run by Old Man Weatherby in an episode of Scooby-Doo. I wrote about these and a number of other commercials on the blog years ago, and I'll put those into the show notes. You should also check out the blog for another new entry about the commercial for the cheap perfume called Wind Song. It's easily one of the most classic commercials of our tween years.
And that sort of does it. I did find a whole slew of my old mock trial matches from high school and various silly videos my friends and I made using my parents' camcorder. But that's not the type of stuff I'll ever really post online. If I do write about it, it'll be in a different context, probably that of the reasons my sister and I have a low threshold for our own embarrassment. I want every home movie and many photographs from our youth burned, crushed into dust, and then set on fire again. But what I did notice is, with a couple of exceptions, many of my tapes stopped around 1994. I had a few that extended into the late 1990s or early 2000s, like episodes of Sex in the City that were on tape, and I know that before I finally got both series on DVD, I had all of Freaks and Geeks and all of my so-called life on VHS. But I had to actually think about why my VHS bonanza really stopped around the end of my junior year and the beginning of my senior year of high school. And I think the explanation is so ridiculously simple that it's almost cliche. A girl. I actually got more of a social life during my senior year of high school. Sure, there were many nights where I was alone and hanging out watching television or movies in my parents' basement, but there were also many nights where I was at friends' houses or driving around with nothing to do because one of my friends had actually gotten his license in a car. Or especially as I got into the winter and spring of that year, I finally started going out with someone, and that really took the majority of my time. That is, when I wasn't working on the shit ton of homework that I had for AP classes or trying to get into college or whatever occupies your time as a 17-year-old suburban kid in the mid-1990s. So the VH history kind of ends there. Or at least it gets handed down to my sister, who started taping things herself and whose stuff I found in a number of tapes. This included an episode of Party of Five where Scott Wolf's character sleeps with someone while Goodnight Elizabeth by Counting Crows plays on the soundtrack. A number of episodes and TV movies from Touched by an Angel, which Nancy loved for some weird reason. The 1995 Billboard Music Awards, which were hosted by Jon Stewart. A few ER episodes from the years when I was watching it in college, so we kind of had that in common. A show about UFOs, the making of arachnophobia. And I know that was in the early, the early 1990s. I think it was like 1990, 1991. But uh, she loved that movie. And uh, in the same way, she loved Touched by an Angel. So and I'm sure that if, I were, if she were to sit down uh, and watch her way through some of these tapes, she would also have the same reactions I did, which many times amounted to, wait, I taped this? I'm thinking of a way to wrap all this up because this is really one of those most random and mundane topics I've ever covered on a show. I mean, like millions of other people, I taped programs off the television in the 80s and 90s. But as much as we are all nostalgic for our childhoods and will buy up copies of movies we love, books we read, albums we bought, or comics we collected, finding stuff like this in a way is more genuine than all that? This hasn't so much been a nostalgia trip, it's been like an archaeological dig. Because I unearthed things that I didn't expect to be there, and for a while, did remember what it was like to be this awkward kid who wasn't lonely per se, although I do know that there are a number of old journal entries of mine that are about wishing I had a girlfriend, but was really into seeing what was out there and would become very fixated on different parts of popular culture. It was, in a way, a precursor to what I do here and now. Plus, it also showed how I cured my boredom from time to time. Life in the suburbs is incredibly dull when you think of the day-to-day. Yes, you do go out and you have fun and you make fun and you 
figure what you want to do when you're a kid riding your bike around or finding random sports to play, but you also find yourself hanging off the couch on a weekend afternoon because nobody's around and everything you can think of doing sucks or takes more effort than you're actually willing to give. So that's why you throw on the Keith Hernandez episode of Seinfeld for the 50th time, or you flip through the TV Guide to see if anything else interesting is on. And the TV Guide should get an episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the serious amount of self-indulgence that's been kind of the unofficial epilogue to uh, my podcasting summer series. I'll have links to old relevant entries in the show notes as well as some new entries for stuff found on those tapes in the blog uh, here and there over the next couple of weeks. So follow me on Twitter at popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F, and check out the Facebook group to stay updated. I will be back on December 23rd, and that will be my third annual Festivus episode. As of right now, i got a really good guest lined up if we can make things work. And it'll be another crappy comic, and it'll be another airing of grievances. So stick around for that. And then, well, when we hit 2019, I'll be well on the road to uh, the 100th episode of this series. I might take a month or so off in the beginning of the year to focus a little more on in-country, like I said a couple episodes ago, but you will definitely hear the 100th episode of Pop Culture Affidavit sometime in 2019, and I know exactly what I'm going to be talking about. So with that little teaser out of the way, thanks as always for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Hello.